Thanks for listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. It's summer at the time of this recording, and we have had the opportunity to visit family and spend some time at my home in Hawaii. It's a trip that we are blessed to take at pretty regular intervals, and if you know the islands, there's a lot to discover and do. Something funny about Aaron and I, we do enjoy doing new things we haven't done before or discovering something new on the island, but we really like sticking to our routine. We have certain places we like to visit, beaches we like to enjoy, hikes we like to take, and restaurants we like to return to. And we sort of do the same trip each time we come home. Not necessarily the same order or itinerary each time, but we have made some traditions that we have found we like to keep. Just the other day, we took a short drive to Iao Valley, swam in the stream, stopped after for shave ice, and then even looped by the Humane Society to pet some kittens on the way home much do that at some point on every trip we do. Then another day we hiked the lava field at La Perouse, then swam at Big Beach in McKenna afterward, jumping the waves to avoid getting pounded in the shore break. Last week, a drive around the backside to Lahaina, a dip at Fleming's Beach in the aqua-colored waters, and then a stop at the outlet shops. We always find the best clearance at the Gap Outlet of Banana Republic in Lahaina. So many more, a number of mini routines that we like to check off the list each time we're home. We don't really plan the trip much because the trip kind of plans itself and we don't get bored of doing pretty much the same thing each time. We look forward to it, even daydream about it all throughout the year. Something comforting and nostalgic about the routine. New experiences each time, but the same routine. And that always becomes our Maui experience and memories. Some traditions and routines, like our times in Hawaii, can be life-giving and beneficial. Other traditions and routines, though, can grow stale and dull. In Mark, Jesus has shaken things up. On the scene, his presence and the healings and teachings have definitely gone noticed. And the nation is ripe for change in the gospel. But the religious establishment is raising their eyebrows as Jesus changes things up, ushering in the new covenant that fulfills and builds upon the old. On this podcast, we see the conflict starts brewing. As the religious leaders start to clench their fingers around the way things have been done, their traditions had strayed from the God's original heart intent, and Jesus is seeking to redirect the agenda back to what was intended by the heart of God. We jump back into Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. Jesus has invited Levi from the tax collecting office to follow him. Levi, perhaps born into the priestly tribe, perhaps shirking the call of God in his life to pursue something else, profitable financially, but not fulfilling God's purposes for him. So this opportunity to leave it behind and start fresh in Jesus, it's a challenging decision, for there was much to lose by this world's standards, but he did it nonetheless to gain what Christ had to offer. What happens next is one of the coolest and sometimes misunderstood moments in Jesus's ministry. Verses 15 through 17. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Levi arose and follows Jesus, and they end up at Levi's house, Jesus with him. We usually clean up when guests are coming. Walking in for this recent visit to my mom and dad's house, everything was cleaned up, in order, picked up. As my dad has always said, we like people to think we always live this way. 
And we do the same before guests arrive too. We pick up and make it look presentable. Maybe you've even done the, can you wait outside and give me five minutes to straighten up? Levi had no time to straighten up. Jesus walked in and saw what was there. Everything as it was when he had left the house that morning. And now Jesus sees it in that state. In our lives, when we invite Jesus in, we can hide nothing. The author of Hebrews writing, And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are, ache, are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus sees us as is. There's no making excuses, getting things together. We have the tendency to try to polish and straighten up and go to church to fellowship with others. I have a friend going through tough things and for a long time praying for him to talk to people about it since he has kept it pretty much quiet. He has a fear of being exposed or of having to speak to others involved in the situation. What might they think? How might their view of him change? It's times like those that we are not to be hiding but exposing. Of course, there is the fear of judgment or rejection, but notice, Jesus doesn't walk in and cut his visit short five minutes later. Jesus comes in and stays, regardless of what state Levi's home was in. It was a place where Jesus needed to be. In Levi's house, there is a vulnerability in this scene. Jesus can handle it, and Jesus already knows. Life is messy. The flesh is messy. Sin is messy. You are messy. Your heart, your thoughts, they're messy. But we don't need to shield Jesus from it. Jesus can handle it, and he can handle our messes. So bring him over. Bring him in. Call him up. Listen to something here. As he, Jesus, was dining in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. There were many. It's emphasized twice. Many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many. There was an abundance of them. The place is full of tax collectors and sinners, for there are many. There is much diversity in the world today, but we all share the fact that we are sinners. Sin nature is no respecter of age or gender or culture or profession or socioeconomic profile. There are sinners galore, for all have sinned and fall short. And for believers, we know that Jesus has received us as sinners and forgiven us for our sin. And we can slap on a not perfect, just forgiven bumper sticker on our car and know that Jesus has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, all our sin. But there are still many tax collectors and sinners sitting all around us as there were at Levi's house. Not a few, many. So while the call to missions is great all around the world, there are many sinners all around us who need Jesus, and we don't have to go far. Who is sitting near you that needs reaching? Bring Jesus home with you there. Short-term missions are amazing. Everyone should go on one at some point. I've been on the going end of short-term missions and the receiving end. And great short-term teams can bring a huge blessing, providing and meeting needs that the local body cannot do themselves. But one of the greatest impacts of short-term missions is impacting those who go on the mission themselves. It's like a switch is flipped in many people who go on such missions trips. When they realize that the work they do out there is something that they can do at home too. And they often come home more invigorated, more passionate, more focused on their need to share the gospel at home as well. When they step out of their comfort zone to share Jesus elsewhere, they come home with a greater fervency to share when they get back too. A friend was working with a group of American college students from a Christian university who had gone out on a missions trip, a foreign land. This group of Americans spending time in some small European town, walking its streets, brushing elbows with locals and cafes and open markets and shops and the day-to-day. And much of time was spent on opening their eyes and ears and engaging with the people who lived in this foreign land. 
to hear those people's stories, to see their needs, to look them in the eye, and then to seek Jesus and how to reach them. And from the reports of it, it sounded like basically all of the students had the same epiphany. They could do this at home, too. Why did they have to go to the other side of the world to find out the stories of the people around them, the needs of the people around them? They could do that at home just as easily. That having stepped away from their regular life and routines and the places and people they see and walk amongst all day, they began to see through new eyes. There were needs all around them at home too. And Jesus was inviting them to step in and be his hands and feet and voice and ear there on the mission field, but at home as well. They could do this because there are many sinners in need everywhere. Who has Jesus sat you by? Who is right in front of you, right next to you, that needs to hear? I wonder if Levi arranged the seating chart to place Jesus by certain people, certain tax collectors and sinners that he felt really needed Jesus, or maybe were ripe for hearing Jesus. Maybe you have had to make a seating chart before for a wedding or a family gathering or even a classroom as a teacher. And you take time to consider who should sit by who. Oh, have that couple sit across from that one. They have a lot in common and will probably get along really well. Oh, put those two singles by each other. Maybe there'll be a spark. Oh, don't put them by each other. They're on opposite sides of the political spectrum and it will surely blow up into a fight. Or in a classroom situation, don't let them sit by each other. They will talk the whole period or they'll cause trouble for the whole class. A purposeful seating chart taking into account all who will attend for the best dynamic for the purpose of the event or situation. God has a seating chart as he seeks to reach the tax collectors and sinners. And there are many next to him to whom he has placed us, not to judge or to condemn them, but to reach them. As Jesus said in John three seventeen, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So take a look at the seating chart and who you're near. It's more than likely the wisdom of God that he's placed you there. As there are many tax collectors and sinners, we shouldn't be surprised when the world around us acts and responds the way that they do. Paul wrote to the Romans, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. How wonderful it would be for us Christians if the world acted more Christ-like. It would make our lives much more pleasant if they stepped it up and took a cue from us to live more godly. We would certainly appreciate it as believers, wouldn't we? It seems like more and more we are able to be around less and less without being defiled or rubbed the wrong way or confronted or have uh, to have to shield our eyes and ears or at least those of our little ones because there are many tax collectors and sinners in our midst. And it can wear down on us, can it? Even Abraham's nephew Lot experienced this a few thousand years ago. And God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by hearing and seeing the things their lawless deeds. We can feel that way, can't we? Our hearts tormented day by day from the things that we see and hear all around us. So we do our best to stay away, to shield ourselves from it. But the fact remains, around us, as was the case at Levi's house the day of Jesus' visit, are many tax collectors and sinners. And they can't help it. But do what? <laughs> Surprise, sin. Because until they're born again, that is the nature of the world around us. It can be a fine line between judging the world and taking a stand against sin. Paul was helping the Corinthian church work through this, since the Corinthian world around them was deeply pagan and wicked. And many in the congregation themselves had recently come out from those lifestyles. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. 
Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Well, why? Because you can't get away from them. They're everywhere. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Again, because we can't expect anything else from them. Do not judge those who are inside, but those who are outside God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. He's talking about the one who is inside because God will deal with those who are outside. It can take wisdom and maturity in the things of the Spirit to know how to navigate in this world. How to hate sin but love the sinner. How to stand for righteousness and still have compassion for the lost. How to be a light and not compromise. And how to leave the door open and not approve that which is evil at the same time. And in this scene in Levi's house... He knew exactly how to walk those fine lines. Jesus did. And that should give us encouragement, knowing that we do not need to have a rule book to follow in this area. But we can look to and follow Jesus in this area. Because he wasn't hanging out with the tax collectors and sinners in the scene. Jesus was reaching them. Notice what it says there. For there were many, and they followed him. They were following Jesus. He brought something into that home, into that room, into that group, and they followed him. He was setting the tone. They weren't setting the tone. Now, how deep this following was at this point, not sure. They may have just been checking him out, seeing what he was all about. Maybe just a social media type follow. They're now open to hearing a bit of what he has to say. Or perhaps today was decision day. They hear and realize that Jesus is offering them a new start, a new life and they are eager to embark on that path. They were not leading Jesus into sinful ways and practices. Jesus was leading them out of the pits of darkness they had dwelt in. For some, as they followed Jesus, this was Liberation Day, and they could sing with the psalmist, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth praise to our God. How wonderful for one who has been set free in Jesus to be able to praise his name, to thank him for pulling him out of that place. And while there might have been many tax collectors and sinners at the start of that meal that day, there were some who were set free because now they were following Jesus. Now, not everyone was singing Jesus's praises in this scene. We read, and when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus was eating with them. In their culture, this meant a sharing, a communion, as they dipped their bread together in the same bowl. A sharing was taking place that was much deeper than grabbing some food at the same drive through window or in our on-demand world. To eat with someone was to become one with them in a way. What you had, they got. And what they had, you got. In our modern world, we canceled potlucks in COVID for fear of what you might catch for the sharing over that, those meals. And they're thinking, you wouldn't eat with anyone who was not a Jew or who was a known sinner, lest their unholy cooties pass off on you. And the scribes and Pharisees bring this up as a point of contention. Why is Jesus eating with them? This was not allowed in their tradition. 
I find it interesting. On the last podcast, we saw the healing of a paralytic. When the man's four friends lowered him down, removing the roof to bring him to, to the feet of Jesus. And when Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven, some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? In the previous scene, they hadn't spoken anything. They reasoned in their hearts. They complained and doubted internally, though Jesus perceived it. Because as we see, there's nothing that we can hide from Jesus. In this scene, we read that they vocalized their criticism. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Their criticism starts out internal in this scene, but as it goes along, they feel emboldened to criticize the ways of Jesus. Internal when they saw the paralytic, but now they start speaking it. First they thought it, but now they speak it. And so it goes with many who criticize the Lord and put him on trial. First they think it. But when lightning bolts don't shoot down from heaven, they feel emboldened to begin speaking openly against the ways of the Lord. We truly live in a world that has no qualms about openly criticizing the ways of Jesus. Not just speaking openly, but speaking boldly and loudly. It's not enough to personally disagree with the Lord or His Word, but there seems to be a need to speak against, to mock, to challenge openly the ways of the Lord. But the Lord will always have the last word. And I love in this scene that Jesus speaks up when he hears, speaking truth in light of the lies or the misinterpretation of what they see happening. And seeing that we are in the hands and feet and ears and mouth of Jesus in the, this world today, we can graciously speak truth into those situations. Jesus speaks up saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He did not quiet down or did not shy away from declaring what he was doing. He did not adjust or shift his position. He articulated God's heart in the situation. Many things the world openly criticizes today come from misunderstanding. The world does not understand the heart of God, that all the commands of God come from a place of love. The erroneous narrative is that God is a killjoy, that the Lord is out of date, out of touch, that the Lord is robbing us of something good, missing the point that God's love guides all that he has called us to in this life. Jesus spoke up so that they might know the purpose and heart of God. It's hard to have any conversations today on controversial things. The lines are so deeply drawn, but some of those conversations could be very eye-opening. If someone would give a grounded believer 15 minutes to explain the heart behind some hot-button issues, to understand that God's love doesn't just wink and say it's okay and give a pass to sin, but that he holds the line in love and his love is behind all of it. Adam and Eve were deceived to think that God was holding out on them, a ruthless dictator perhaps, who was keeping them from something they felt entitled to in the Garden of Eden. But looking back, clothed in their fig leaves and hiding in the bushes, in sobriety, I can bet they saw that God's love had warned them. And when God replaced the itchy fig leaves with clothing made from skins, the first animal sacrifices that provided a covering for man's fallen nature to be fulfilled in the sacrifice of God's own son some millennium later, those skins, I bet, wrapped them in the love of God, assuring them that though they were, there were repercussions for their sin, God had not forsaken them in their sin, but provided a sacrifice for it. 
Sometimes we need help hearing and discovering the heart of God. We may begin grumbling in our minds and Jesus perceives it. And then we may begin expressing it outwardly, speaking our criticism. If God loved me, then why this? I know what scripture says, but my life doesn't reflect that. That may be true for some people, but in my experience, God has not come through. Opportunities to speak up, to dispel the misunderstanding and clarify the heart of God to articulate that God is still loving even with what he says and even with what we see and even with what we are experiencing. Now, as the scribes and Pharisees criticize, Jesus does not deny what he's doing, eating with tax collectors and sinners. It says, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Many get very excited to hear this, and the church has had some identity crisis in this area off and on in history. Just how close do we get to the world? How Christian should we be in a non-Christian world? How comfortable and welcoming should we be to people and beliefs and lifestyles that conflict with the Bible? How culturally relevant do we become? What falls under the umbrella of becoming all things to all people, and when do we cross over into compromise? Reaching the lost and reaching the tax collectors and sinners is the heart of God. But making room to reach the lost is not the same as being, quote, worldly. Our methods, methods may change, our approach may shift, new avenues may be led by the Lord, but compromising the message or giving up fundamentals to appease the world is never the heart of God. James said it sharply when he wrote, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Reaching the world does not require us to become worldly. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Jesus' gesture of eating with tax collectors and sinners in no way compromised him or watered him down or tempted him or made him more relevant or appealing to them. Jesus was still clear. Notice what he says in this exchange. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There in verse 17, some get so thrilled with this information, but they stop at the words sinners and they forget the repentance part. He came to call the sinners, but to call the sinners to repentance. Not to celebrate sinners or advocate for sinners or be a voice for sinners, the statement did not end with Jesus saying he came to call sinners. It goes on sinners to repentance. There is a cure for sin. There is healing for sin. There is freedom for the sinner. There is deliverance from sin. And sending the sinner back out into the world in a way that assures them that they can stay in their sin, that their sin is just fine, that we love them in their sin, that there's no need to pursue healing from sin is not the heart of Jesus. Imagine an ER where they just looked you over, they acknowledged your illness, and then they sent you home. Out to continue in suffering, out to infect others, out to grow worse and worse. It would be malpractice to do so. And the heart of God is not to brush over the illness of sin and let it be, all because we want to be liked or to be accepting of what we see. Jesus ate with the sinners, and he called those sinners to repentance. To repent means to reconsider, to make a 180, to turn from something and then turn to something. When we as believers try too hard to buddy up with the world, we rob them of the power of repentance. That God sees sin, that God calls out sin, that God has provided for sin, and that God can deliver us from sin and into new life. 
And it's no wonder that we see many in the church accepting rather than impacting the world. Paul said in the last time, perilous times would come, and among other things, the church would be having a form of godliness, but denying its power. One reason for this powerlessness? No message to repent. Because repentance unleashes the power of the cross, the power of the resurrection. If there's no sin to repent of, it robs Jesus of displaying his power. Those tax collectors and sinners, it tells us, followed him. And we can see that they truly heard and believed the words of Jesus because they repented. They reconsidered the futility of their lives and choices until that point, and they relished the opportunity to begin anew. But while the tax collectors and sinners walked away rejoicing at what Jesus had done for them, the religious leaders did not embrace the truth of God. We see this subject fester a bit in the next verses, Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. The disciples of John and of the Pharisees were fasting, and then they came to Jesus and said, Why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. No one sees a, sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Their religious tradition made provision for fasting. It was a regular practice, denying the flesh to seek the things of the Spirit, or at least that was the intent of it. Though many in that culture had lost all the sight of what it was at its core, instead engaging in a works righteousness, going through the motions of starving themselves at times in a fruitless effort to twist God's arm to do something for them. A sort of, look God, we're on our best behavior. Now do us a favor, because we are fasting after all, or since we're doing this, can you just ignore the other things we're trying to hide from you? But they observed that Jesus did not require his disciples to fast. There was a freedom here that they were not experiencing themselves. So they come to ask him what's going on here. Notice the progression. They come to him and ask. First, with the paralytic, they thought their criticisms and Jesus perceived them. Then they spoke them when they saw what was happening at Levi's house, but not to Jesus directly, though he heard it and addressed it. Here, though, they confront him asking him why his disciples do not fast at the prescribed times. A legitimate question. They're not sure they were sincere in, their, sincere in their questioning, at least not all of them. But Jesus was not requiring his disciples to fast. Probably a bit of a shock to a few of these disciples of his own, since some of them were formerly John's disciples, as we see in John chapter 1 that Andrew had been a disciple of John prior to Jesus. And now under Jesus, no longer required to fast at certain times. I imagine that that must have been a challenge to let go of, or maybe not. But it is so easy to get into a works-based approach to faith. We tally up our points of the things that we have done, and in that, as if God now owes us. But Jesus was not just shirking this faith-based practice, since fasting was something God prescribed after all. And we see that even Jesus fast. But he explains why there were no fasts in his group at this time. And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. It's not the time for that, Jesus says. The friends of the bridegroom had some responsibility in those days. They should be in full-on wedding mode. 
getting things prepped, a mission to get the home and the reception and the groom prepped, to accompany him all the way to get the bride, then to follow through with the festivities. The bridegroom needs them alert and present and productive. I did a wedding a few months back and was happy to see the bridal party, both groomsmen and bridesmaids, took time to eat throughout the day. They had snacks in their separate areas where they were getting ready, even some of the best homemade cinnamon rolls in the groom's chamber. With so much going on, decorating the hair and makeup, the pre-ceremony photos and all that, some people skip eating that day or forget to eat. And then the whole crew is hangry, not just hungry, but hungry and irritable, hangry. There is a time coming when they can crash after or skip a meal or diet if they want. But the groom wants them there and all hands on deck for him up until that moment to stay nourished and energized, to keep going throughout it all. Man, a wedding day in our culture can be a long day, but in those days, it was a long, drawn-out event. The couple at the wedding a few months back, when it came time for dinner, spent the whole time greeting guests. I watched from afar, and they never got anything to eat once they'd emerged from their bride and groom chambers hours earlier to take those photos to begin the ceremony. In fact, as they were getting ready to leave, I asked them, do you guys want some food? And the bride's eyes lit up so bright, almost as bright as when she said, I do hours earlier. Yes, they said. So I found some foil and containers and shoved some of the remaining Mexican buffet leftovers into the back seat of their limo and found a remaining pack of bottled water and put it back there on the floor. Food was essential in that moment. Jesus is not dissing fasting or spiritual disciplines, but at this time, Fasting was not a focus because they were in a different season. How important it is in the season to stay nourished for the Lord. When Jesus and his disciples stopped by the well in Samaria and Jesus told the, the woman there about the living water that he could give, the disciples had headed into town nearby to grab something to eat. And when they returned, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Jesus remained nourished in the things of the Lord so that he could do the work that he had been sent for. We see him drawing away to be with the Father. We see him feeding upon God's word, engaging in prayer, serving faithfully in fellowship and worship with the people of God. And so we should stay nourished in the Lord, because at this time in our lives and society, there is work to do. Practically, Jesus and his disciples were on the move, going from place to place, village to village, late nights healing, early mornings praying. And though the disciples of John and the Pharisees fasted regularly, for now that was not something Jesus needed his disciples to do, for they were seeking and growing in the Lord in other ways. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Notice, nor did Jesus write off their fasting as some outdated legalistic practice. In fact, he affirmed that these men would fast in a future season of life and ministry. When the bridegroom is taken from them, which would take place a few years from this point in Jesus' ministry, when he would die, be buried, rise from the grave, and then ascend to the Father. Things would get hard for this group of men who would carry the message and ministry of Jesus forward. They would be opposed, rejected, despised, and even martyred, many of them. There would be a time where they would fast to seek wisdom, direction, power, guidance, mercy. That time was coming, but for now, they were right on time. It's interesting that Jesus' disciples were in a different season. John's disciples, Jesus didn't rebuke them for fasting. That was likely their season to do so, as John's ministry would soon be cut short and they needed to be seeking direction from the Father. We each have our own seasons, and the Lord does not have us all on the same track. 
Aaron and I teach part-time for an online private school, and this school is an asynchronous model, meaning students are going at their own pace. They have different start dates and end dates. Some take the allotted five months to complete a semester. Others move more quickly and complete it in the minimum two and a half months that's required. Students turn in different assignments at different times. Not all the essays or papers or worksheets come in all at once. Some even jump around and go out of order, saving certain projects for later. It's one of the selling points of the school's program, the individuality of that learner. With the Lord, each of us is on an asynchronous plan as his disciples. What he is doing with me and you might be different. Different seasons, different chapters, different units. And even if we are studying for the same exam, God has a test bank and we probably will not end up with the same versions of the test. So don't try to copy my answers. Paul was addressing this in the book of Romans, focusing on areas like whether they could eat meat or certain days of worship. And he said in many of the areas of our spiritual lives, we need to look to God. And then Paul said this, Who are you to judge another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. We are to serve Jesus. He is our master. So while John's disciples were fasting, Jesus's were not yet on that lesson. And Jesus takes the opportunity as these inquirers are asking about Jesus's methodology with his disciples to add this commentary. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. The patch and the garment had to be compatible. The old and the new would work in contradiction to one another otherwise. The wineskins could be used just once. New wineskins that were free to stretch during the fermenting process of the wine. Old ones would crack and rift, and all the valuable wine would run out, wasted. And so Jesus was doing a new thing. It would not necessarily fit into the context of the old religious system. It was too rigid, that system. It had served its season in God's plan of redemption. In fact, man had hardened it even more in their interpretations of it by the time Jesus came on the scene. As they had faithfully stewarded the old covenant, Israel did, passing it along from generation to generation, now to be fulfilled in Jesus. Nothing of the past was disregarded, at least not the way God had intended it, though many of the things that man had made it into, Jesus confronted directly. But Jesus had chosen new wineskins for this new covenant. These men were not the religious elite, not the establishment. We've seen that in Mark already. He didn't go up to Jerusalem to pick the top 12 uh, Pharisees to be his disciples. He was there along the sea. He picked the fishermen. He picks the tax collector in this chapter we've just seen. Because these men were flexible and malleable and teachable, able to move with the work that Jesus was doing. The wine is always new. It's not a new wine, but it's always a fresh wine. The word of God does not need to be made new by reinterpreting or changing to adjust to the culture. The old gospel is always new. It doesn't need to be watered down to be more appealing to the world. The old gospel is always new. Even if you've heard it a thousand times, there's a newness to it. And the vessel, if it's flexible, can receive it and grow with it. That needs to be our heart through every season. We can never reach a point where we say, okay, I've done it. I've achieved it. We must remain soft and malleable, allowing God's word new once again to do its work in us, to stretch us as needed, lest we risk being cracked and spilled if we become unteachable. That's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Can Jesus work with me? 
Am I flexible? Would he skip over me? Am I part of that religious elite who's so crusty and old in my ways that I can't be used by him? Or if he were looking out on the world today, would he choose me because I'm flexible to do what it is that he wants to do? John Phillips wrote a commentary in the book of John. And in this in the description, it says this, Every movement of God needs a fresh touch of the Holy Spirit by the third generation. The first generation is motivated by conviction. Great truths have been grasped, and those who have espoused them have a compulsion to spread those truths abroad. They will dare all and die for them. The second generation inherits these truths, but the conviction softens to a belief. They believe the truths they have been taught. They debate them, defend them, and disseminate them. But the fire and passion have gone. By the third generation, the belief becomes an opinion. The third generation will trade first generation truth, dilute it, change it, accept counterfeits, and make room for error. John wrote for the third generation because they needed a fresh revival. All about him he saw error and apostasy with flagrant deceptions accepted as gospel truth. So out of his remarkable memory, quickened, inspired, and energized by the Holy Spirit, John was really old. John wrote his gospel to remind the church of the essential and eternal deity of Christ. And then he wrote three epistles to remind his readers of the true humanity of the Lord Jesus. We are many generations away now from the days of Jesus. But each of us has the opportunity to be the first generation all over again. We don't need to reinvent or change or adjust for the world around us, but we get to press in and know him better, to stand up upon the unchanging word of God. For Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The old gospel is new wine, even today, effective and powerful, able to convict and save and transform and sanctify. May our hearts and lives be malleable to stretch in the directions that we need to, so as not to spill out the precious life-giving gift of God, but to preserve it in this generation as we wait for His return, to be poured out in a way that brings honor to God. So Lord, we praise You that You are the unchanging God, and while You don't change, we do, and that's by Your grace. Thank You for saving the sinner of whom we are the chief. And if anyone listening is not saved, save now, Lord, by the power of Your Holy Spirit. We ask for your power to have influence on the world in which you have placed us. May your gospel be clear and powerful, leading to precious repentance. And may you keep us from being legalistic and dead tradition, but may you breathe new life into the time-tested and proven truths that graced us, that you graced us with, and that we cling to now. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your faithfulness, both to us personally and in each generation. Lord, we rest in that goodness and faithfulness today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.